Oh, hello, Professor. Oh, hi, hi. How are you doing? Good, good. It's before lunchtime here, which means that probably you'll be in a cheerful mood and I'll be grumpy. Oh, well, should we get you something? <laughs> no, no, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Do you need but some tea or something or get an apple? From Quanta Magazine, this is The Joy of X. I'm Steve Strogatz. In this episode, Tadashi Tokieda. It's amazing how um, conditioned we humans are by by food and uh, and sleep and things. Oh like yeah, this. especially I yeah. I am very sensitive to um, the need to eat. Actually, so in my case, yeah. I kind of shut down and get dysfunctional and just stare blankly. And my wife can tell when it's happening. Oh, that's interesting. But I'm in the cursed position. I never feel hungry. Hmm. Now, I, I'm not claiming that I pushed myself to the limit, but I don't remember <laughs> the last time I felt hungry since early childhood. Really? But Wow. And nor do I feel full, actually. So I can, Yeah, so that's the, a dangerous decision combination. To eat, <laughs> eating is a purely intellectual decision for me and often a social one. Yeah, but the uh, but the, indeed my wife can tell that you know I become grumpy and grumpy and so forth. <laughs> <laughs> so if I start sort of um, behaving that way, please forgive me and point it out, and I, I'll. I'll I, all right, I will. I will forgive <laughs> you and point it out. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. In fact, people, my friends, don't seem to mind. <laughs> all right, now we don't do too much poetry on this show, but I'm going to try something with you. It's uh, from William Blake, Auguries of Innocence. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. When I think of Tadashi Tokieda, I think about Blake's grain of sand. Except that for Tadashi, it's not the world in a grain of sand, it's the world in a toy. Tadashi sees in toys, just like children's toys, little playthings, um, the whole universe is in there, the principles of physics. He is a mathematician, originally from Japan, working in mathematical physics, and his passion is toys, inventing them, collecting them, explaining them, studying them, because these are toys that can reveal real-world surprises about math and physics. But in his hands, they're like magic tricks. And I believe that almost as soon as we met, he started doing these magic tricks for my kids and me and my wife. So I, I'm thinking back to the day in 2012, mm -hmm. in a sunny day in Cambridge, England, when I um, reacquainted myself with you, and I had my two little daughters with me and my wife. Yes, yes, yes. of course I remember that. And, yeah, good. So you remember. And my memory is that you had a toy that mm -hmm. Americans would call a slinky. Yes. Maybe worldwide. Right. Is it known as a slinky everywhere? Uh, yes. Um, it was a registered trademark at some point. Yeah, okay. So a slinky, for anyone who doesn't know, but a slinky is a very loose spring. That's it. How would you very, define a Very, very long. Long and loose. And very, uh, very sort of thickly coiled spring. Uh -huh. So that when you're suspended, it goes way, way down. You know, you, if you think about a spring, maybe you are thinking of something that's a foot long or something. But the, it's actually very, very long and very soft and uh, really wobbly. Yeah. That kind of thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Very good. And so I think what you did... Um, if I can recall, is that you, you had the slinky, you asked my daughters who were then about, let's see, they would have been 12 and 10, uh, Leah and Joe, and you said, I have, I have a slinky, I wanted to show you something. 
Now watch carefully. And then you held the slinky, as you mentioned, suspending it. So you mm-hmm. held it. Did you stand on, on something? Yes, I, I stood on uh, on a chair, on, uh, maybe on a table. On a table, I think. Yeah, on a table because I wanted to have the slinky to sus- to be suspended to its full length, which is very long indeed. Ah, okay. So then you, I presumably, held it way. Would stretch your arm up over your head, uh, yeah, let the yeah, slinky right. hang down. It's I don't know six feet long or something when it's stretched yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And well, you tell me, what would have been your instructions? Do you remember? Well, I said, well, you know, this is a kind of toy that you might have played with because if usually people let it go down a staircase. Um, flunk, flunk, flunk. It's a really wonderful thing to watch. By the way, somebody called Longet Higgins analyzed this motion in terms of um, shockwave. And so it's actually a very, very beautiful. And it thing. was a standard. That was the TV commercial for the Slinky when I was a kid. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Right? When I was a kid oh, and they were trying to sell you a Slinky, they would... There was uh, a. I can remember the theme song. My sound engineer is nodding and smiling. Uh, he remembers it too. We're the same age, I think. But so yeah, a, a slinky, a slinky, something wonderful toy. And anyway, and they would show it doing this motion where it's shaped like elbow macaroni, and um, one of the feet of the elbow would be on a stair, and then the next foot would somehow magically. Uh-huh jump over the top yeah. and climb down to the yeah. next stair and so on. It would just walk oh, downstairs. Anyway, so what I would have um, suggested to your delightful daughters is um, is to hang the slinky and say, well, we'll do something else. Um, you know, if I drop an object, I think I would have probably started with some more usual solid object. For example, I might have taken um, maybe a case or a book or something. And if I drop it, as soon as I release my, my hand, um, let go, um, it will start dropping, right? It will just start accelerating. It will shoot, stonk, stonk down. Mm-hmm. Yes, they say, yes, yes. And I will probably would have demonstrated this. But this sling, um, slinky, behaves in a rather different fashion. So I'm going to let go of the top. And of course, the top will start going down. But watch the bottom of the slinky. Just f- keep focusing. And I would have probably put the bottom of the slinky, hang, hang it so that the bottom of the slinky is uh, at the eye Good level. With, yeah. I level and just watching them tight and then please watch and I'm going to say three, two, one, zero and then let go but you'll see that for a um, space of time very brief moment of time but noticeable noticeable space of time the bottom of the stinky will seem to hover levitate and not move although I release the top so it's just uh, hanging in, in midair while Apparently, this is a um, rough description, the top of the slinky will come collapsing down to the bottom, but and only when the, um, the spring has collapsed to its shortest length will the whole thing start falling down. So, so is that so really I your memory, that you would this. have told them what to look for before doing it? Yes. In, in yeah, and the but in fact, I would have done it... Uh, so I'm saying this in, the, in this language, in this order, because... Um, well, people who are listening to this um, will not be watching any object. Yeah. And because the uh, the point is for them to um, notice a new phenomenon rather than for me to give the punchline. Exactly. And besides, exactly. by the way, it's children and adults alike. If they really try to look out for a new phenomenon, they might find something that the person showing, for example, like me, may not have expected. And that's so much the better, mm. of course. Yeah. So anyway, so the, I would have described and I would have invited them to watch the bottom and then see what uh, what happens and then and let go. And then and they would have noticed something. Absolutely. And so this is what happened. And it was so astonishing. It's it the bottom is hovering and then it yes. only seems to notice that its top is no longer, you know, at 
holding it up, and then it starts to fall. Yeah, exactly. It seems unbelievable. To, it, first of all, it reminded me of this childhood. <laughs> Funny, yeah. all these things bring back childhood memories. Mm -hmm. So this, mm -hmm. in this case, it's another um, bit of American pop culture, the cartoon of Roadrunner and Coyote. Uh -huh. um, oh, yes, yes, I know, I know. And it, you can guess what I'm thinking of here? Yeah, yeah, it's really wonderful. I like this. And uh, the question is, with whom do you sympathize with this? I always sympathize <laughs> with the coyote. <laughs> well, there's, right. So I'm thinking of the specific thing that used to happen frequently, that a coyote would be chasing Roadrunner, and then somehow Roadrunner would evade capture, and the coyote who's running so furiously would end up running off a cliff and then be suspended in midair, not realizing that he was now off the cliff and he'd look around for a while and everything was fine until he would look down and then <laughs> then he would start to drop. So it was almost the same kind of experience. Watching the slinky, it's the bottom is hovering and then it only seems to notice that its top is no longer, you know, holding it up and then it starts to fall. Yeah, but the crucial thing in this uh, in this entire experience, and in fact your daughters did this, is then I invited um, your daughters to take turns to do the hanging themselves, mm -hmm. and then the rest of us watched. Because obviously, the first time it happens, I'm cheating, right? That's the first, shall I say, um, was, as Bayesians would, would say, the reasonable prior. That would be the default assumption that I'm cheating. I'm kind of a magician, yeah. and I'm showing something, and so on. So they have to do it themselves, and I have to sit back and watch, and, you know, convince them, and in fact, they have to sort of discover for themselves that, in fact, it works for them. It's, in fact, um, something that is in nature. And that is, I think, key. You see, the, um, it's, all of these surprises are, of course, wonderful. And, in fact, that's key, as you say. And we shall discuss this if you like. But the, um, there is a difference between what the magician... And this is kind of a magic trick, if you like, mm -hmm. um, broadly construed. But the magic tricks, as performed by professional magicians... Um, have the property that the magician has to do something really clever and skillful in order for something interesting to happen, some surprise to be precipitated. Yeah. In other words, the intelligence or the information content of the magic trick is in the hands of the magician. Ah. Yeah? Good. Whereas yes. the kind of thing that I would like to pursue and I really enjoy sort of sharing with people is also a magic trick, but um, I'm in fact not doing anything. <laughs> All I'm doing is to sort of point out a phenomenon of nature, which may have escaped notice until now, or maybe have, have been noticed, but by not my, many people, and which is under our noses all the time, provided we are careful and provided we are we watch uh, watch with imagination. Yeah, good. But you see, nice the, phrase. you see, the, 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 it works every time, and I keep all my hands open and so forth. And yet, some surprise is precipitated because the information content and the intelligence of the magic trick is in the hands of nature. Mm. So I'm doing absolutely nothing. All I'm doing is to introduce nature to the spectator, spectator nature, nature spectator, please meet, <laughs> and that's, that's all there is, there is. So in some sense, that is a very, very different uh, kind of a brand of um, magic. There is in, this is therefore a special brand of magic, and it is very curious. And yeah. It's a unusual brand of magic for magi professional magicians as well. But it also has some other properties. First of all, I'm not doing anything. And secondly, um, it's it's kind of modular and it can be built up because, you know, after we did this, um, you know, we went on to see some other things and then we tried this and that. And then the people might say, well, what if you try this? OK, let's try this and so forth. And then you can build up and you can learn from what you have learned before. And then you look for new surprises and so on. Mm -hmm. So you can actually piece together these little bits of um, or sometimes big bits of um, magic, magic tricks curated by nature, and then build up something for ourselves and look for even bigger surprises. Mm. And so this is a very special brand of magic. And in fact, this brand of magic has a traditional name. Oh, really? 
It's called science. Ah, you got me. <laughs> Walked right into that one. <laughs> when we see something dropped, we expect it to fall right away. And the idea that the bottom of the slinky could just hover in space without moving for a, quite a perceptible length of time, it comes as a shock. It seems like it's defying the laws of physics, though, of course, it can't. You know, nothing really defies the laws of physics. That's why they're laws. But still, this combination of surprise and pleasure is something that we normally associate with magic. But through Tadashi's work, we see that it's right there in science, too, that nature itself can produce those same feelings of surprise and pleasure. Science is not Tadashi's only love. He also loves languages. And in an earlier life, he taught himself 10 different languages at least. He was a practicing philologist. That was his profession at one time. A philologist is someone who loves languages, or more specifically, loves words. It's right there in the name, philo for love and logos for word. Before I had my conversation with Tadashi, we almost had a little negotiation. There was a back and forth exchange of emails. What would we talk about? You know, what was fair game? Normally with him, it's all about visuals. He likes to do experiments right before your eyes and surprise you, but you can't really do that in a podcast. So in place of that, he thought of a list of surprising or interesting things that we could discuss. And it looked fantastic. I, you know, was very happy to do that. Um, but in the course of that email, he introduced an exotic word, at least exotic to me, a French word, causerie, which means apparently, I had to look it up, an informal chat, a, a very lighthearted chat about this or that. Yeah, so this is the kind of thing that, uh, I mean, I just generated this without any thought, but the, uh, this is the kind of thing that, of course, goes, in, goes into what I described as causerie, and when you are um, hopefully, well, in this case, no, um, discussing various uh, ch chatting about this and that, about the universe over a glass of wine or something like that. Seems is that a, so, yeah, I was curious the, about the word. I looked it up on the internet, yeah. causerie, yeah. but tell us... Um, what you, well, what, what, is, is obviously a French word, and you know that the um, one of the generators of, shall I say, culture is um, is conversations in salons of the um, of the old aristocratic homes and so forth. And in the in France, in particular, there was a tradition, as you know, of let's say the lady of the of the of the family to host a bunch of guests. It is really a party, but the party not the American style of standing around and, and nibbling things and uh, drinking cocktails. But <laughs> uh, everyone is sort of seated or maybe roaming about and so forth in a very comfortable salon, and then you know discussing this that. The rule, however. Is is, as Talleyrand said, you know, the, um, the, uh, the great French minister, and a rather suspicious character anyway, said that the, um, the, the sign of intelligence is the ability to speak lightly of heavy things and heavily of light things. And that's right. That's right. Oh, and good. so you should not be completely serious, but there should be some, uh, some piquancy to, to what you say. You, you shouldn't be trite and so forth. Anyway, it's, it's extremely difficult to achieve, and of course I don't. But the, uh, that's the kind of thing that is uh, very nice. And the, the word causerie has been used in other contexts. For example, when Einstein, um, after general theory of relativity, was touring Europe and the world indeed, he came to Paris. And uh, by the way, there's a story about how Einstein is addressed in various countries. In France, of course, he was Monsieur Einstein, Monsieur Professor. In uh, Germany, he was Herr Professor Dr. Einstein. And the question is, how was he addressed in America? 
Mr. Al- Albert. Oh, Albert. Okay, of course, better. <laughs> but that's right. But anyway, so the, in France, um, there was a, you'll be interested in this actually, a causerie that was organized by the Academy of Sciences between Einstein and the and Elie Carton and the, a few other people about um, this and that. So this was a fairly... Since, um, um, it's possible someone listening to this will not be as familiar with Elie Carton as a typical yeah. mathematician. Ah, so yes. Elie Carton is one of the fathers of modern um, studies of uh, area of differential geometry, that is, the study of geometry that um, uses, um, makes he- wholesale use of uh, differential integral calculus. Yeah. And he really developed a very original approach, which was not so un- well understood at the time, but which really took over the entire field, and in particular the f- uh, theory of differential forms and, and so forth. Okay, so and he's hosting the salon. So, yes, well, it's kind of a, it's the, a, the a more artificial setup because now aristocratic homes are now gone, long gone, turned into museums and so forth. But I think it was Academy de Sciences in Paris which hosted this causerie. And the, instead of having Einstein give a lecture, which he did elsewhere, but there was an occasion where, where Cartan and Einstein and some other um, interesting people were sitting around um, just discussing and talking about various things while um, they were surrounded by an audience listening. Ah. It's a bit like a panel discussion, but it's much, much more informal and much faster and, and sort of wittier than uh, a panel discussion. Okay. You know, panel discussion has this kind of usually uh, row of people behind uh, behind the table. It <laughs> looks like a jury and <laughs> yes. so kind of uh, examination board and so forth. And it is coordinated by some somebody who's running the show and so on. But the causerie really depends on the spontaneity and the taste of each each person. And apparently it was really interesting. What Tadashi is really known for is revealing subtle yet deep principles of of math and physics through incredibly down-to-earth homespun materials. Things that he calls them toys. He uses these ordinary materials to reveal extraordinary things about our universe. I also have found in talking to him that he's argumentative in a pleasant way. His instinct seems to be to say no, and then not not so much in a corrective, well, yeah, maybe in a corrective way, but but that whatever direction you try to take something, or if you think you anticipate where he's going, he likes to stop you cold and say no, and then he'll straighten you out and take it where he wants to go. So I have found that a little unnerving in the past to be constantly getting jammed. You know, like in improv, that they say you're supposed to say yes, yes and. I find him as a no, no, no and person. <laughs> One maybe key feature of surprise is that you know, the expectation, it goes hand in hand, but it is the obverse side of surprise. So you are expecting something or you are expecting the universe to work in a certain way or people around you to behave in a certain way and the universe or the people don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Suddenly, and you have to change your perception, your your take on the universe ever so slightly, mm-hmm. but uh, substantially. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of what the surprise is. Uh, geez, this does not fit what I have been thinking, what I've been assuming. Yeah. And so I have to do something about it. And th- that's a surprise, and it's it pleasurable, but it's also slightly disturbing. Right. And the mathematicians like to, um, in fact, have codified this um, this kind of thing at least partly, and this is codified in the in the concept and the word of counterexample. Ah, okay. So you sort of um, assume that the, under this condition, this condition, this and this conclusion must hold logically. It's inescapable. But then somebody comes along and says, well, look, the, here's a situation that satisfies all your conditions, but your conclusion doesn't hold. Yeah. And you say, ah, that's a counterexample. You have to actually uh, revisit your logic and you have to think a bit more carefully. I see. Nice. So, so in, it's not just an example. It's counter to your expectation. 
That's right. It's a counterexample. Yeah. So it is, in fact, really superbly psychologically important. So as as such, I think counterexample right. is really central to, if you like, the human civilization. If I may make a grandiloquent speech, um, you know, because that's how we progress. Oh, that's nice. We have to have counterexamples, and otherwise, we just keep assuming, 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 and it's just we we die the death of you know, assuming everything. So counterexample is really a funny and, in some sense, a subtle and really an annoying concept. I think for daily logic. I agree. Yeah, it's it's extremely um, unforgiving, very inflexible. Exactly. And the, I mean, it's the highest possible standard of evidence to demand no counterexamples. Exactly. And that's the world in which we mathematicians must work. And this is, it, it, I think, the, con- the concept and the word counterexample are so much advertising. You know, to show people that there is such a world, and in fact, you can sometimes, if needs be, operate with that standard of rigor. You know, another example of this is uh, everyone um, knows intuitively, and of course it's used all the time in, uh, in hard sciences, that if A then B is logically equivalent to not B implies not A. Mm-hmm. If not B, then not A. It's called contrapositive. So the statement and its contrapositive are absolutely equivalent, and there's no difference between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And this is used intuitively and instinctively by everyone and so on. However, let's consider the statement and accept the statement. If Steve doesn't scold Tadashi, then Tadashi doesn't work. If I don't scold okay, so you, we, then you don't work? Yeah. Okay. If I if Steve doesn't scold Tadashi, then Tadashi doesn't work. Yeah. Okay. So this is um, a statement we can accept, and we also understand what the intuitive background is probably because Tadashi is a lazy bum, and you know he <laughs> needs to be scolded by, driven by Steve. Okay. And so on. Yes. But it should be logically equivalent to say, if Tadashi works, then Steve scolds him. Okay. Which doesn't sound equivalent at all, right? <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> if Steve doesn't score Tadashi, then Tadashi doesn't work. It should be equivalent to say, if Tadashi works, then Steve scores him. Well, yes, although there feels like there's a tense issue. I may, I must have scolded you previously. Exactly. So the, uh, the point is that in, in daily language, uh, implication, if-then statement, always comes with a nuance of chronology, ah. as you say, tense, or causation. Ah, oh, okay, okay. Uh-huh. But in mathematics and, in fact, in implications, logical implications in harder sciences, there is no such nuance. All you are saying is that if you are facing this situation, then you can conclude this and that unambiguously and always um, um, from that situation. That's all there is. And so, indeed, in order to make the uh, second statement equivalent to the sound equivalent to the first intuitively we should have said if tadashi works then steve must have scolded him right 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 before so but it can happen you know earlier or later in space time it doesn't matter as as far as mathematics is concerned but you know people do of course grow up as human beings and the natural instinct for causation and chronology so they find this um, implication very very confusing and i have attended specialist seminars among expert mathematicians where confusion arose about logic because of this issue So it turns out that even among professional mathematicians, but let alone, you know, among non-mathematicians, it often helps to explain things if you embed a logical um, chain of reasoning into some kind of story. Yeah. After the break, how calculus explains the emotional nature of the seasons. Also, Tadashi thinks he's figured out a puzzle from the 5th century BC. We'll be right back. If you like the Joy of X podcast and getting to know brilliant scientists and mathematicians, 
You might also like Quanta Magazine's science podcast. In every episode, Quanta's award-winning reporters illuminate the stories behind new discoveries in mathematics, physics, computer science, and the life sciences. Check it out on Apple Podcasts or on your preferred podcasting app or at quantamagazine.org. The Quanta Magazine Science Podcast, illuminating science for your ears. I wanted to know how Tadashi found his way into math. I came into mathematics quite late, in my, well into my 20s. Uh-huh. Before then, I had no exposure to mathematics. It's amazing. And in particular, I had never heard of calculus and, and until well past my 20s. Really? And I started studying calculus at some point, yeah, to teach myself calculus. Sometime in your, in your 20s, maybe pr- creeping up on 30. Yeah. Yeah, and I was already, um, you know, um, I, lect- I was lecturing in classical philology and so forth. I was a grown-up, and um, but I decided to study something else. So I taught myself um, calculus, and in fact, before then, I had to teach myself, you know, high school algebra and analytic geometry and all that because I didn't know any of this. <laughs> but anyway, so when I learned calculus, I learned the definition of the derivative, and that is the rate of change, if you like. Uh-huh. And before I could do anything with the, this, this definition, you know, you learn that, for example, derivative of x cubed is three times x squared and things like that later on. But before I could do anything with the derivative, because I didn't have practice yet, I learned the definition of derivative, and I suddenly thought I understood something for the first time. We all feel, and generations of literature from all countries say that autumn and spring have some special status. During those seasons, you feel that time is passing, fleeting very fast, and then you feel nostalgic about things, and you have romantic feelings, and so on, right? And uh, You know, flowers come, and the leaves fall, and so forth. Yeah, and, and so Tennyson forth. has yeah. that line in the spring, uh, a man's exactly. heart so turns in, to thoughts of in, love. In contrast, in summer, in midsummer and midwinter, you think that things are standing still. You have this feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And I understood why we all have that feeling, because if you plot anything that's relevant, like temperature, humidity, and so forth, so forth as a function of time through, a, through the year, well, summer and winter are maximum and minimum points of that graph. Mm-hmm. That's where the rate of change, that is the derivative, is nearly zero. And so where is the derivative maximum, positively maximum, negatively maximum? Of course, in between spring and autumn. That's where things are changing very fast. And of course, that's when we have this fleeting feeling and sort of ephemeral feeling and therefore nostalgia. And oh, that's of course, an interesting very point. I see. So that's, so that's a nice, well, really? So is the claim that spring and fall are the, well, what, the most nostalgic months? The mo- I mean, because certainly winter well, is a very emotional time that's that's it but the winter because you you kind of think about but i think it's true that people have this fleeting fleeting feeling feeling, ephemeral in in spring and and so it can be sometimes positive sometimes negative whatever it it, it can't be classified into one along one axis positive negative so i think spring and autumn have this uh, this uh, this feeling and also i understood that if now you take that graph for example if you sort of um, kind of uh, graph throughout the year and then you stretch it very very high and low vertically that means that you are living in a country where it's very hot in the summer and very cold in winter for example then that means that in spring and autumn the the slope or the derivative rate of change becomes bigger right so that means and also for a given range of temperature let's talk about temperature that uh, the period during which you fall into that temperature will be shorter because the slope is higher so that means that the things happen much faster and much more 
quickly. And so in countries like Russia, you have a much more intense feeling of fleetingness. And so and I think it influences the Russian literature as well. What a nice idea. <laughs> but, but anyway, I, you understand all of this without being able to calculate anything with derivative, just merely by learning that there is this way of looking at the universe, derivative. Wow. Tadashi is always offering new ways to look at the universe. Sometimes he asks us to look far back in history to make sense of how we understand nature. There's something interesting about the um, clockwise about the hemispheres. You know, why is clockwise clockwise? Yes, I have no idea. Why not the other way around? I don't know. Why not the other way around? I think the only explanation is that a long time ago, clocks were, were sundials. Okay. So there is this stick standing, it's called gnomon in the traditional term, and on the northern hemisphere, the sun rises east and kind of goes south and sets west. And if you think about how the shadow of the gnomon on the ground moves, it starts by being cast toward west because the sun is east and then goes north and then finally ends up being east and that is clockwise. Uh Uh-huh. So you think it's yeah. a product of clocks somehow being a northern hemisphere? I think because on the southern hemisphere, yeah. the shadow will move counterclockwise. Uh-huh. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably the only explanation. That, the, that clocks yeah. are an artifact of northern I, I think it is hemisphere, hemisphere dependent. So if the, uh, the clocks were developed and popularized um, on the southern, uh, the uh, sundial that is on the southern hemisphere, probably would have had the opposite convention. By the way, until the end of the 19th century, um, you know, clockwise and anti-clockwise were still, uh, mathematicians like to call anti-clockwise or counterclockwise positive and clockwise negative because they're perverse. But there were two conventions and they were kind of coexisting. Mm -hmm. It is is a little surprising that we use positive for counterclockwise. That's the one we all learned. It it is a bit confusing, isn't it? Um, There's a Another sort of sup- uh, story in support of why clockwise should be positive. Um, this is really an extraordinary story. Um, and uh, as you said, I'm a f- classical philologist. And I think when you came to Cambridge and I was, uh, did I show you and your daughters? I think the um, Renaissance Library of my Absolutely, college. Absolutely, yes. So, I'm, yeah, I, I, so I showed you one document which told the story, but I'd like to tell yeah, it please. Um, in public as well. So Herodotus, who flourished around 500 BC, uh, he's the father of history, as he's known, because you know he, the, before then, Western civilization had no history at all. And so he's the first person who wrote something that we can recognize as history. Of course, he was followed by Thucydides later on and so on. But Herodotus had no documents, written documents to work with in order to write history. So he traveled very, very widely. In particular, went to Egypt and then wrote many, many things that he brought back from there. It's very wonderful. Now, in the fourth book of Herodotus, uh, Egypt is the second book, but this story happens uh, appears on the fourth book. He tells the story of Pharaoh, Egyptian Pharaoh called Nekos, about um, 700 BC. So this is 200 years before Herodotus is writing. And Nekos... Um, pharaoh of Egypt wanted to find out what shape Africa was. Uh-huh. Very sensible question. Good. In other words, more concretely, whether it was entirely surrounded by sea, in other words, Africa would be an island, a big island, or whether land, land continued south forever. Very reasonable question. Mm-hmm. And rather admirably, instead of speculation, um, Nekos decided to find, this, uh, find out by observation. And to this end, he sent out, he commanded the Phoenicians and the 
ancestors of today's Lebanese and the best sailors of the time, and they founded Carthage and so on, to um, sail off from the Red Sea, what we call the Red Sea now, and start going south along the African coast, you know, along the, where now Kenya is and so uh-huh. forth, and they just keep going and, and see what happens. So they sailed off. And the Egyptians didn't hear back from them for <laughs> quite a long time. And so they were scratching their heads. Well, what happened? You know, they just sailed off and no, no news. Well, there was no, 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 no transmitter for news in those days. But they were surprised that several years later, those Phoenicians came back through the pillars of Hercules. And that's the classical expression for Gibraltar. Oh. In other words, from the other side yeah. and came back to Egypt. Really? This caused an enormous amount of controversy because the Phoenicians came back in a boat different from the boat on which they sailed off. So the Phoenicians said, yes, yes, we circumnavigated this entire continent, and it is an island. It's entirely surrounded by, by sea. But the Egyptians said, oh, we should have never trusted those Phoenicians. You know, they look at the way they conduct the business. They cheat all the time. They probably, you know, went off for a certain distance and abandoned their boat and cut across on foot and built another boat and came back. <laughs> and then the Phoenicians said, no, no, no. It took a long, that's a long time because, of course, our boat got damaged in the course of the journey. And we had to land and sow and harvest to supplement our food, food stock and then build another boat and then keep going and so and then, and so on. That's why, you know, we had to keep going along the entire coast. And that's why it took us a long time. And Herodotus at the end of this remarkable passage, and says that as far as he's concerned, he doesn't know whom to believe. Yeah? Mm. And very, very good historian. But he says, um, there is some story that Phoenicians are uh, supposed to have been telling, which was told to me later on, which is so strange that I have to write it down for posterity. Okay. He says that the, according to the Phoenicians, while they were going around this continent, for a period of time, they had the midday sun on their right-hand side. Oh. So if you can picture going around the current map of Africa yeah. uh, from the Red Sea and going around clockwise, uh, speaking of clockwise, yeah, yeah. and going around in the Cape of Good Hope, yes. right-hand side means that they had the midday sun not to the south, as we assume on the Southern Hemisphere, but to the north. Sure. And of course, that's what happens on the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, dexia is the um, original phrase. They, they had the midday sun to their right hand side. Now, this phrase that Herodotus reports, two hundred years after the Phoenicians said it, and the, to us now, two hundred uh, two thousand five hundred years later, proves to us that the Phoenicians must have made it because. Nobody on the Northern Hemisphere had the imagination to invent such a lie in those days. Maybe so. I mean, I don't know about proof, but certainly very plausible given that. Oh, oh, I don't think I don't think anybody you knew, really don't anybody think? had the imagination that there was a part of the part of the universe where you would have the sun to the north, midday sun to the north. Hmm. But all the experiences of all the surrounding cultures of the Northern Hemisphere people had the midday sun to the south. So mathematicians and experiments, in fact, I wanted to complain about, well, uh, sort of lovingly complain about mathematicians. You know, I often okay. show various experiments and tabletop demos and so on to people, and hopefully they have some surprise element. Yeah. But in order to um, enhance the surprise, I usually ask my, my spectators or my, my friends to guess what's going to happen. Yes. 
Yeah, oh, of course that's very nice because you know by guessing. By the way, guessing is extremely important because if you guess right, you can be very proud, and if right? you guess wrong, of course that's an opportunity to become more intelligent. And so it's <laughs> really, but the guessing also commits you to the problem. And so if yeah, you yeah. really, really every time you try to solve a problem, you should first guess. And even if it's a complete you know, pot shot, that's fine. You, sh- you should guess to the best of your ability. Anyway, I for example, I tried to um, drop some. Uh, unfortunately, I can't show you the experiment. Next time we meet, I'll do this. Um, I try to drop some coins and so on, and then. You know they are going to do something funny in midair and so on. But I ask them, well, guess what's going to happen? And usual people guess, oh, this is going to happen. No, no, it can't happen. Um, I think this is going to happen. And of course, they many of them resort to the uh, psychological approach. Ah, if Tadashi is asking, then I, I guess <laughs> this way, but I have to guess the opposite because he's a mean person and so on. Yeah. Okay, but the one common response from mathematicians is really delightful. When I ask them, and I'm about to, you know, say drop some coins in front of them, so on, and I ask them what's what's going to happen, their response is, "What are we assuming?" Oh, <laughs> I mean, wow! It's, it's really wonderful. It's what the French call deformation professionnelle, but it's really it says something about <laughs> I think the mathematician's culture. Let me try we, to translate that: professional deformation. Yeah, professional deformation. Yes. That's <laughs> right. So, so that your profession warps you in in such a way that you're. Scarcely yeah. recognizable to the rest of humanity. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's, that's interesting. So they say, "What are we assuming?" You, then, when you perf- so they will they refuse to guess. So I, 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 all, what can I say? And I can say, well, please assume that you live in this universe and then, <laughs> and I'm about to do something actually real in front of you. And well, I would ass- like to speculate what's going on there, which is uh-huh. um, because I. And I think it brings us into other interesting territory here uh-huh. about education and, you know, well, okay, so let me just come out with it, that that there's a very high premium on not being wrong in mathematics mm-hmm. as for reasons that we talked about earlier, that, you know, one counterexample is enough to sink a whole yes. theory. Yes. So so that for that reason, I think we put such extreme emphasis on not being wrong That's that... True, yes. um, which, which I think is very stultifying for our students, you know, because as you frequently emphasize in your teaching and your um, toys and so on, that that being wrong is, as you just said a minute ago, being wrong is a chance to learn something. Yes. And the best teachers appreciate that, that they don't punish students for being wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, of course, you know, that's, that's a difficult issue. We have to start talking about grading yes. and what do you grade mm-hmm. on. But still... Um, if if your main goal in life is to never and notice I'm not saying is important to be right I'm saying it's important not to be wrong mm-hmm. it's a little bit different because yes. not being wrong is a very conservative attitude being yes. right is a more adventurous mm-hmm. attitude you have mm-hmm. to take a chance anyway I so I, I feel like that's an you're you're bringing up with that story an example of not just the deformation of Yes, mathematicians I, I, agree, their training, I agree that but mathematicians, really more than any other people, are afraid of being wrong, saying yeah. something wrong. So they try to say something um, correct, but um, sometimes at the expense of um, sort of guessing something right. That's right. Yeah. But it is also a necessary part of our profession because we really have to guard against those leaks, right? I mean, it's, um, it's kind of um, a curse. And if you oh, like, you uh, mean because we're building this edifice that needs to stand for all right. time? That's right. I mean, you, and in other words, the other side of the coin, there's always the other side, is yes. that the, uh, I mean, this thing that we're building is really something surreal, um, that it's actually reliable. That the you know it's 
is going to hold up no mm-hmm. matter what. Um, this um, probably what you're saying is reflected in the cultural difference between I, I think about physics a lot nowadays and the, uh, most of my work is physics, but between physicists and mathematicians, when going back to the implication if then if A then B, when a physicist says, well, if A then B, what they mean is, uh, let's start with the mathematicians. So when the mathematicians say if A then B, what they mean is, well, if you give me the condition A, then whatever else happens, it doesn't matter, anything else can happen, I can guarantee to you at least B. Okay. That's what a mathematician says. That's what uh-huh. A implies B means for a mathematician. But often when a physicist says if A then B, what the physicist means is that well, if you give me the condition A and if nothing else happens, if it's a sanitized situation and if you can allow me to idealize, then I can, I can tell you that B happens. But if you start bringing in some other stuff, well, then all bets are off. That's the attitude. In, a, in other words, the, so this logical implication means something almost opposite things to a mathematician and a physicist. Hmm. Yeah, and this I think is kind of the connected w- with whether you uh, you want to avoid saying something wrong or you want to sort of go out, stick out your neck, and say something right. For example, let's start adding up um, odd numbers. For example, one oh, okay. plus three—that's four. Oh, that's interesting. Four is two squared, right? Okay. How about one plus three plus five? Well, that's nine. Ah, that's nine is three squared. It's still a square. And then one plus three plus five plus seven. Geez, that's 16. Again, a square. One plus three plus five plus seven plus now nine. That's 25. Again, a square. And so it turns out that, as you know, this uh, pattern continues. If you keep adding odd numbers and stop somewhere, it's always a square. Yeah. Okay, so the mathematical statement is if you add up the first um, odd numbers and then stop somewhere, the conclusion, so that's assume that you do this, the conclusion is that the answer is always a square. Mm-hmm. Now, this is absolutely true in whichever country you are under whichever political regime you live and whatever mood you happen to be, and you can be in a foul mood, you can be in a cheerful mood, um, you can um, be ha- have any kind of orientation in your life or you can, have, um, you can be living in any period of history. And in fact, we believe if, we, um, if extraterrestrial intelligence exists and then we get in touch with them and then if they are sort of uh, clever enough, they will agree Yes, yes, that's absolutely true. It doesn't really matter. And in fact, if laws of gravity have nothing to do with this. Whatever, you can change any, everything else in the universe, but it's true that if you add up the um, odd numbers and stop somewhere, you always get a, an, uh, a square. Very good, yep. So that's the kind of thing that the mathematicians will say and believe, and I think it's true. Um, in fact, time and again, you know, there are applications in mathematics which rely on this absolute sort of uh, unshakable reliability. On the other hand, a physical experiment, um, you know, I do this kind of thing all the time. Um, for example, this uh, slinky experiment. Well, you know, you have to be careful. You have to actually stand high enough. And then when you um, suspend the slinky that uh, I mentioned, in the, I have to let the slinky settle down and quiet down and then, you know, come to a stop. If it's still shaking when I release, then you want to see the effect. So, and also, if while I'm doing the experiment, somebody barges into the room and bangs into the slinky, of course, the experiment will Mm -hmm. work as well, right? So, you know, there are all sorts of things that you have to remove in a physical experiment and then isolate, idealize, and if you like, sanitize the phenomenon before you can say a 
if you before you can make a pure conclusion. Mm-hmm. Pure conclusion, which may be idealized, but which is suggestive and somehow captures the essence well enough that even with sort of dirty noises that you might actually um, in in practice, um, it somehow tells you what's essential about the phenomenon and what's interesting about the phenomenon. That's kind of the physical implication. Right, right, right. So, yeah, yeah it's, uh, the example you're mentioning reminds me of um, a little episode from the history of science, which is that Galileo, mm-hmm. when he was discovering mm-hmm. the laws of falling bodies, mm-hmm. did experiments mm-hmm. where he took a ball and put it mm-hmm. on a, yes. a ramp, which well, actually wasn't yeah. a ramp. It was more like a groove in a long, narrow piece of molding. And then he would roll the That's ball it. down. Okay. So as you know, he, he says in Two New Sciences that he, um, he made the ball very round and he made the groove very smooth and very straight. So he's doing mm. all these things that you just described, trying to remove mm. all the dirt, mm. all the contamination, yeah. all the things that could deviate from the ideal case. Mm. And actually, mm. he stated the law of falling using exactly what you just said about odd numbers. He called it the law of yeah. odd numbers. Yeah, that's right. That's it because of acceleration. That's right. That's it. Yeah. So yeah. the square, you know, distance traveled is proportional to the time squared. He he said yeah, in the very, first very, instant very, we roll one distance, yeah. one unit, then in the next instant. Or actually, it was an instant. Yeah, yeah. After one unit of time, you go some distance. In the second unit yeah. of time, you go three times that distance, and then in the that's third, it, that's it. Yeah, five. Yeah, yeah, very, very. Isn't that good. nice? Yeah, very, very. Yeah. Good. So it's so yeah, the it's thing really you just mentioned forward. is, and, and also these two tendencies: the, the tendency to idealize, which led yeah. him to discover the law, but then the need to eliminate all the details that could corrupt <laughs> or or uh, ruin the experiment. That's hmm. it. That's Interesting. It. So G. H. Hardy said that the you know, contrary to what people think, you know, mathematicians are in much um, more intimate contact with reality than natural scientists. What? And the reason is... How's that? Okay, a physicist can talk about an electron, but the, the closer you look at the concept, yeah, the fuzzier it becomes. You start not understanding what it means. I mean, if you're looking at it from far away and, and so on, you, it's a very useful concept. But the, oh, And the, what is a chair, for example? Well, it's chairs. I'm sitting on a chair while talking to you. But then if you look really closely, it consists of molecules, and then, but they are not, of course, in a crystal structure. And, you know, what is it? I mean, we don't quite understand, right? Whereas a, a mathematician's object, closer you look, the clearer it oh, becomes. Oh, the statement is the, the objects of mathematics. Not, not, I mean, mathematicians are not more connected to real reality. They're connected to right. their so own the real reality. reality. Not the physical reality, but the, somehow the, um, the, the universe with which mathematicians um, tend to deal is a much in a really sharp focus. And it is really nothing fuzzy about it. I see. It so, so the point being, we yeah. know, we mathematicians know our world better than the physicists know their world. Well, in, in, well, in some sense, but the, it's really in the sense of, you know, the again, when we say an implication, we say, well, whatever else happens, we I, I don't care. I mean, I know that this is true, whereas a physicist has to idealize and and sort of extract the essential feature, which might be masked by noise and so forth and so forth. To a mathematician, the world of mathematical ideas is a world of perfect information. There is no noise, there is no fuzz, there's no contamination. Everything is as clear as it can be. Whereas for a physicist or a scientist, there's always, you know, the intrusion of, of complication, friction, noise, things that have to be cleaned off before you can see the real phenomena of interest. And so that's why he says that physicists are always going for the essential phenomenon. Because the essence is the part that's beautiful. You have to clean off the fuzz and the gunk to get to it. At the end of our conversation, I found myself wondering, how do audiences react to to Dashi's world, the world of playthings and toys?
besides making toys and thinking about the, because I mean, some people may be wondering, okay, I don't want to be obnoxious, but but just on behalf of any skeptical listeners who are thinking, yeah, you know, this is a lot of cute, whimsical game playing. Um, what's the point of all this, really? Ah, what's the point of all this? That's a, that's an interesting question, and you know the. Um, um, of course, in this uh, conversation, I didn't demonstrate um, um, anything because the, uh, you know, as I said, many of the things that we do depend on vision, depend on sight. And over the telephone conversation, we cannot do this. Um, but, you know, when we meet, we can, and then I, I can show people and so forth. And when I give, for example, public lectures, I do quite a few of these. And at the end, there is, in fact, a question which is even more direct, shall I say, more more in your face, which is, um, somebody asks, well, you know, you've been showing all those um, you know, counterintuitive, surprising phenomena, a tabletop demos, which we witnessed, we guessed, and we guessed wrong, but we understood how it worked and then how it's connected to the rest of the universe and so forth. It was all good. But does this have any practical applications? And this question is very, very common and, in fact, almost canonical, as the mathematicians like to say. Does this have any practical application? Six words, six exact words. Uh-huh. It's as if somebody taught all these people to ask this question in exactly those words. Yes. Yeah. And it's very interesting. Now, the, my response, and by the way, I do many, many other things besides designing and sharing toys and so forth. But... Uh, Let's focus on this aspect of um, what I like to do and so on. My response is, well, suppose that my answer was, well, this allows us to make the trunk of an elephant longer. (laughs) Well, would you accept that as a practical application? And the answer is probably no. No, maybe not. So this shows that we have to agree uh, a priori, ahead of time, what constitutes a satisfactory practical application for us. yes. What do we accept as a practical application? Uh-huh. A priori, because, you know, apparently you're not going to accept prolonging the trunk of an elephant as a practical application. No. Well, too bad. I thought it was a practical application. No, I don't think it's... A, and so on, so on. Yeah? We have to agree on something. So it's very important then to search our souls, so to speak, and, and decide or start glimpsing what we think is a practical application and what would satisfy us. Yeah, and then we sometimes go into a psychoanalytic session with uh, with my audience, and then now it's my turn to probe them and so on. And it's very very interesting that often the answer, not always, but very often the answer converges to two things. Something is a practical application if, for example, it allows me to make a billion dollars very quickly. Mm, okay. Or if it allows me to kill million people very quickly. Mm. One or the Awful. other. Yeah. And people who arrived at this conclusion through, if you like, my myutic and rather sort of mean-spirited sort of guidance, are very surprised by their answers, surprised. Not medical applications? So sometimes medical comes up, but very often it doesn't, which is very interesting. Uh Uh-huh. And so, and anyway, so I'm just reporting, and then they're really shocked by their own answers, and then start revisiting what they think is practicality, and so on, so on. And then, you know, my then real answer is, well, you know, I don't know what's practical application for you, but I have one practical application of all this. When I show these to children, they seem to be happy. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you. That's a very sweet note. I think we should we should leave it there. Well, and if that's not a practical application, what is a practical application? Next time on The Joy of X... 
Corey Bargman takes us into the brain of her comma-sized scientific muse, the worm. The Joy of X is a podcast project of Quanta Magazine. We're produced by Story Mechanics. Our producers are Dana Bialik and Camille Peterson. Our music is composed by Yuri Weber and Charles Michelet. Ellen Horn is our executive producer. From Quanta, our editorial advisors are Thomas Lynn and John Rennie. Our sound engineers are Charles Michelet and at the Cornell University Broadcast Studio, Glenn Palmer and Bertrand Odom-Reed, who I like to call Bert. I'm Steve Strogatz. Thanks for listening.